What you just saw is a video clip of a man who should not be with us in the world. In 1953, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, a baby boy was born dead. The attending physician set this little body aside and tended to his mother for 18 minutes. But David Ring survived, the youngest of eight siblings. As a teenager in Liberty, Missouri, growing up there, David Ring grew up with the challenges that come with cerebral palsy as a result of no oxygen for 18 minutes. Along with his physical limitations, Ring was orphaned at age 14, shuffled from home to home, and finally landing in an abusive situation that made him feel unworthy of love and eventually unworthy of life. But God had plans for David Ring. In 1970, David entered the family of God. He repented of his sins and believed the gospel that Jesus truly loved him. And he also discovered that Jesus is Lord. So much so that David, instead of blaming God for his condition over time, he embraces limitations and by the grace and power of God, turned them into his greatest asset. As you can tell, every time he speaks, he must rely on the Lord. And he's still at it. What you saw was a, um, was a presentation that he did in, last year, last year, 2019. For the past 47 years, David has told the story of God's grace and power in his life. And the line he's most famous for is, I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? <laughs> but David is, though he's unique in many ways, and I'll put that in air quotes, in many other ways, he's quite normal. See, he and his wife, Karen, make their home in Nashville. They're parents of four kids, April, Ashley, Nathan, and Amy Joy. They are Poppy and Bella to two grandsons, Carter and Cooper, and a granddaughter, Alexander. David Ring was and is a broken man. But God has used him over the years to bless others. Today we're going to see another broken man. His name is Paul. For Paul, too, was broken. See, broken to bless others. And in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we're going to see God's work of grace in this broken man's life. First, I want to remind us, however briefly, of where the apostle to the Corinthians was and why he wrote what he wrote. As we went through some things last week, remember that there were several letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and not just what we have as First and Second Corinthians. He wrote at least two others that we're aware of. His very first letter was not what we call First Corinthians, because Paul refers to a letter he already wrote to them in chapter 5, verse 9, that they were not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now later, Paul did write what we have in our possession, First Corinthians, as we know, and as we studied in depth for a long time, True. And at the end of this letter, though, Paul gives them his travel plans because he wanted to be with them. He was going to visit them sometime down the road. And we read this in, in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. He says, But I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Notice the word and here. 
The effective work in Ephesus that the Lord opened to Paul included many adversaries. It's as though Paul concluded that the effective doors of opportunity for ministry carry, carry a price tag with it. It's adversaries. Let's not think for a moment that a successful ministry in your life, my life, anybody's life is an easy thing. It's carefree or hassle-free or danger-free. One preacher said something like this a number of years ago, that it would be a slander on the devil's character for him to not oppose a true work of God. In other words, satanic opposition comes with the territory of a true work of God. And as we are going to see today, opposition that Paul and his friends faced was absolutely fierce. But as if to make matters worse, not only was there a fierce battle in Ephesus, where he wrote 2 Corinthians, there was also now a fierce battle in Corinth as well. As we saw last week, Paul saw a need to pay an emergency visit to the church in Corinth. There was a person or maybe even others, uh, maybe a, a coalition of people, thoroughly dissing Paul's God-given authority. And you know what I mean when I say diss, right? Total disrespect, totally undermining his authority. Now, there's not a whole lot of detail here in 2 Corinthians 1 as to what this person said and how persuasive he or they were to undermine Paul's authority. But it was enough of a danger for Paul to drop what he was doing and go there and pay them a visit and try to sort some of these things out. So as we get into the passage today, let me remind us of the central reason why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, summed up in one word, disunity. And as I'm going to highlight many times for us as we go through 2 Corinthians, this, this theme, as we will highlight, is summed up in a phrase of disauthority. And so, in 1 Corinthians, we have disunity. In 2 Corinthians, we have disauthority. And again, this authority that Paul had was not originating with him. God had given him the authority, again, to build up the Corinthians and not to tear them down. But the authority that Paul gave, the Lord gave Paul, worked itself out in a lot of opposition, a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering. And these things go hand in hand with what God would call spiritual success. Now, we think about success, you know, the prosperity gospel preachers, for example, what do they think success is? A lot of money, a lot of fame, you know, get your name out there, that kind of stuff. But that's not what God calls it, success. See, God defines success as serving and spiritual power as working through suffering. See, this is the power of the cross of Christ, and we know this. See, Jesus, as we know, 100% man, 100% God, he's the God-man, as the theologians tell us. The Lord Jesus was and is the epitome of divine power. His ministry was empowered by, indeed, the Spirit of God. And his power was shown through his suffering. Isaiah predicted that Messiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, was going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Lord Jesus suffered the most of any person who ever lived and ever would live. He who had never had any personal experience with sin became sin for us. All of our sin was laid upon Jesus. 
when he was nailed to the cross. Now, this is something impossible for us to fathom. We cannot imagine this because we have a sinful nature. We were born with a sinful nature. We have a natural bent towards sinning. Ever notice how babies don't have to be taught to be selfish? (laughs) What is usually the first word that they speak besides mama and dada? No or mine, right? Mine. And you're going to discover that, Herbie. Mine is coming. Now, as we as parents know, we teach our kids the first couple of years how to walk and talk. And the next 16 to sit down and be quiet, right? We have to teach our kids in the ways of denying themselves, delay gratification, to avoid sin to their own good so they won't hurt themselves or hurt others. But Jesus never had to be taught to avoid sin, did he? Though he was human, he did not have a sinful human nature, but he had a human nature nonetheless. And as one who suffered the most, Jesus was able to meet the deepest levels of our need, dying for our sin in our place. Paul will tell us later in this letter that Christ's death makes it possible for people to actually become the righteousness of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Remember in your B.C. days, if you could remember, you know, the wickedness that you were living in, the wickedness that I was living in. Amazing, appalling stuff. But God says, in Christ, we can become the righteousness of God. And so with that backdrop, let's look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to see today Paul's perspective on suffering. In, in fact, God's divine perspective on suffering through the Apostle Paul. And something he's going to be talking about over and over again in this letter. So let's read verses 1 to 7 together here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, after Paul gives them the standard greeting that everybody wrote back then, you know, he says, hey, here I am, here you are, I'm, uh, here I am writing to you. You know, in our letters today, we have to wait till the end. Who wrote this letter? But not for a century. It was right up front. That's a good thing. But he wrote that way, of course, like everybody else did. But then he jumps into the letter with a full heart, a heart enriched by affliction. In verses 3 and 4, the apostle to the Corinthians opens up for us a profound truth of what affliction does in the life of a follower of Christ. You ever been afflicted? I think all of us have. 
Let's look again at these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a repeated word here. And what is that? Comfort. And I see here two things that are amazing. First is how involved the Lord Jesus is in our lives as his people. Paul tells us the truth here of what the Lord does when we are afflicted. What does he do? He comforts us. Now, this is a spiritual fact of life, my brothers and sisters, that we need to get a hold of here. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that God stands by and is ready to comfort us when we call upon him. No, he says that God does something here. He takes initiative. He comforts us in our affliction. When we're afflicted, what does he do? He comes right there and comforts us. And just so we understand, let's ask the question, who are those who God comforts? Is it everybody in the world? No. God's people. People in the family. Our heavenly Father does this. And so we, when we as God's people are afflicted, and this word afflicted means any kind of suffering, what does God do? Immediately takes initiative and comforts us. Now, this word comfort literally means to encourage. You know, it doesn't mean that he has pity on us or just kind of makes us kind of feel better in the midst of our circumstances. That's not what he's talking about. It may include some of that, but primarily the comforting means encouragement. See, something happens in our lives when we are encouraged. We are strengthened for the task that God has given us to do. We're empowered to carry on with the Lord. And by the way, the word comfort, uh, the, the same Greek word that's used here for comfort is also used to describe the Holy Spirit. See, he is the one who has literally come alongside to help us. That's what the comforter does. And that's what God does in our lives, comforts us, encourages us, enables us to do what God would have us do. And then we also come to a realization when that happens of God's presence and power in our lives. For example, how is it that the church is alive and well and strong in North Korea? Why is that? Because God comforts them. He encourages them. He strengthens them in their affliction as his children. It's not lost on God that his children... His sons and daughters are in North Korea suffering right now. See, when we hear stories of our persecuted brothers and sisters, though, how often do we say, you know what? I could never go through what they're going through. I don't have that kind of power. But let's clearly see what Paul says here. God comforts us when we go through affliction, not before. It's a very important point that we need to keep in mind. God doesn't kind of prepare us, as it were. God is right there with us when we go through it. Because our North Korean brothers and sisters, there was a time, you know, that they, that they were very, very weak and God had to encourage them and strengthen them too. The very first time that they were beaten up, the very first time that they were tortured, God had to provide comfort and encouragement at that time. And now they are rocks, as it were. And they can teach us a few things about affliction, 
and about how to survive uh, persecution. And by the way, when God comforts us, he's just being who he is to his people. Ever notice that? See, Paul calls him the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's who he is. How often do people, though, falsely accuse God, our good God, of being a tyrant? That he wants to inflict pain on us, you know, to teach us a few lessons because he can. There are a lot of people who believe that. But as Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and 32, some of the best words ever penned about God and his nature toward us who are his people, he says this. What then can we sh- shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So having seen the what of affliction, now let's look at the why of affliction. Why does God allow hard times to come to our lives? He doesn't have to, you know. God could prevent it, couldn't he? If he's all-powerful, We don't have to go through this if God says, you're not going through this. But he does allow it, and there's a reason for it. Short answer is to equip us to help others who are also afflicted. Let's look at verse 4. Who comforts us, God, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort of that God has comforted us with. Wonderful words, aren't they? After the fact. See, no affliction is is pleasant, is it? That's why they call it affliction. But notice the process. We get afflicted. We go through pain and suffering. God brings it or God allows it into our lives. Then God, through his spirit, comforts us in the midst of our affliction. And what does this do? It enables us to turn right around and comfort others, encourage others who are in any affliction. And so what do we do? We pass on that comfort, that encouragement that we ourselves have received from the Lord precisely because we've been afflicted and precisely because we have received his comfort, his encouragement. Now, I find wonderful truth in this process, don't you? Isn't this great? Do you realize that there's only one qualification that you and I as followers of Christ need to encourage others? Only this, that we have been afflicted and that we receive his encouragement, we receive his comfort. That's it. That's all is needed, that we we are now equipped to help others. See, it doesn't require counseling degrees, contrary to popular belief. You know, I I have a problem. I need to go to the experts. No, you don't. You know, now, there may be some, some extreme cases. Yeah, maybe. But for the most part, we can help one another, can't we? No formal training is required for us to encourage our spiritual siblings. Just experiencing affliction and receiving God's encouragement. That's all that's needed. And our willingness, then, to go and encourage others. That's our problem, isn't it? But there's a reason for that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But notice as well who we are called and qualified to encourage. Anybody who's going through affliction, get that. Anybody with any affliction 
And when I'm talking about email, I'm talking about within the body of Christ. Now, we can offer comfort and encouragement to others, but if they're but if a non-Christian, how often will they receive that? Probably very seldom because we come at it from how? God has helped me. God has encouraged me. If they want nothing to do with God, then are they going to receive our encouragement? Probably not. But how many Christians have bought into the lie that only those who have experienced what they have already experienced, the affliction that they have gone through, are the only ones that are qualified to encourage them? How many seem to have the attitude and even say this to well-meaning brothers and sisters? Well, you know what? You just don't know what I'm going through. So how can you help me? But let's think about this. If those afflicted can only receive comfort from those who have experienced the same things as they have, then no one can help them. Why is that? Because every person's experience is unique. Even take two people who have lost loved ones. Two people grieve differently, don't they? There is no exact experience together. There's nothing like that. There may be similar experiences, but not exactly. And so if I can only receive comfort and encouragement from someone who has had the exact same experience as me, there is nobody else. Now, obviously, there are things that we can do, some things that we can learn to be more effective in our encouragement to others. Like, for example, of what not to say. When someone's afflicted, the last thing we want to say to somebody is this. I know how you feel. Guess what? No, you don't. You don't know how that person feels. So don't lie and don't say it. You know, Proverbs 14.10 14, tells us, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. There are things that we just cannot, others cannot experience. We have to carry the load ourselves. We can all improve our serve. You know, Chuck Swindoll has tied to one of his many, many books. But the foundation we can stand on and serve a fellow Christian is simply this. Because I have been afflicted and because I've received God's encouragement, therefore, I'm now qualified to help you in your affliction and encourage you and comfort you. But how many Christians don't seem to experience, see, the comfort that God is right now doing in their lives when they're afflicted? You know, how, you know any Christian like that? You know, they, they've, they've suffered a traumatic loss or pain or whatever. And for weeks after that, you know, they're still in that funk. They're still there. They can't seem to pull out of it. Why is that? I believe there's an answer. I'm convinced there's a reason for it. And so let me introduce you to a term that I'm going to bring up a number of times during our study. And this term is what I call a theocentric view of life. See, Paul was able to recognize the comfort of God in the midst of his afflictions because he had a theocentric view of life. Theocentric, say it with me. Theocentric, theocentric. Paul was able to see God in the midst of his afflictions because God was at the center of his life. That's what theocentric means having God at the center of your life. For Paul, things didn't just happen to him. He didn't blame it on this person, that person. He didn't blame it on the devil. For God, for Paul, it was God in the midst of all of this. See, Paul knew God was in the center of his circumstances. 
It was as if God or Paul wore God-colored glasses, God-shaded glasses. Now, we're familiar with this idea of God-shaded glasses. For example, what do we call a person, metaphorically speaking, wearing, who seems to be a little bit naive, you know, kind of checked out of reality, who's all positive about, about everything? What do we call a person wearing? Rose-colored glasses, exactly. But because Paul had a theocentric view of life, he never saw the Lord as anything other than what he said he was. Paul was very familiar with the Scripture, wasn't he? And so he believed God. He took God at his word. He believed what God said about himself. Paul never accused the Lord falsely. And I'm confident that he never demanded the Lord to tell him why when he was going through the things he went through. And I'm just as confident that Paul asked the Lord the question of what? Oftentimes, Lord, like, Lord, what are you going to do with this? Or even the how? Lord, how are you going to glorify yourself in this situation in my life? So the questions, Lord, what? And Lord, how? I think are good questions as we go under affliction as well. And so here's Paul, a broken man in his ministry, wearing his God-shaded glasses with a theocentric view of life, experiencing now affliction on two fronts, in Ephesus and also in Corinth, people undermining his authority. Paul had amazing spiritual toughness, didn't he? But that, that's what happens when we come to understand and, have, and having a theocentric view of life. We can have that spiritual toughness. Now, in verses 5 to 7, Paul now turns his attention to his relationship with the Corinthians and their shared sufferings. And what I find significant here is that for all the problems and the sins and the failures that Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians, there was no lack of suffering in their midst for the sake of Christ. Though there was much worldliness there in the church in Corinth, and as Paul wrote that first letter, they're true Christians were living their lives faithfully following the Lord. Both Paul and his friends, as well as the Corinthians as a whole, were seen as objects of wrath by the world and the devil, hence their shared experience of suffering. And here Paul gives a slight hint of how he is going to deal with these these people who are trying to undermine his authority. The false workers did not experience the suffering that that Paul and his his friends did. They did not have the same hardships. They were serving God and it came easy to them. They were not afflicted. Paul was, Paul's friends were, the Corinthians were, but they were not. But isn't that the way ministry is supposed to be? To not have problems? To have fun as we minister? Isn't it supposed to be exciting? Isn't it supposed to be attractive to the world? I don't see a whole lot of yeah, yeah. No, not really. See, how many people, and I've seen this, maybe you've seen this too, that, that we want to show the world that Christians can have fun too. But as we know, it's not really that way, is it? <laughs> Paul hints here at something that's been true down through the ages, that it's the righteous who are persecuted and afflicted for the sake of the Lord. Remember Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. 120 years, he preached righteousness, preached judgment. It was coming. It was coming. Get ready. 
And what was the result of his ministry? Seven family members. And it's quite possible that he had other sons and daughters who didn't listen to him. Can you imagine his anguish? Assuming that's true. I think of the prophets who were horribly mistreated for the sake of the truth. All you have to do is go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and you'll see that. What about John the Baptist who literally lost his head for pointing out the unrighteousness of King Herod? And what did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, blessed are you. Blessed when people persecute you and say all kinds of false things about you for my sake. But he also said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For so they treated the false prophets. So the bottom line here is that suffering for the sake of Christ and receiving his comfort go hand in hand. And God's people are not alone in suffering. This was Paul's reminder to the true believers in the church in Corinth. Now, in verses 8 to 11, we see Paul addressing his very difficult circumstances in Ephesus and his need for them to pray for him. Again, remember how we said that an open door of ministry was there, and there are many, many uh, adversaries, much opposition. So let's find out how intense this opposition was. Verses 8 to 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's pretty big affliction, isn't it? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks in our behalf for the blessing God granted us through the prayers of many. Verses 8 to 10, we see Paul illustrating the point that it's the righteous who will suffer as opposed to the false apostles who seem to have it all together, undermining the authority in the church in Corinth. They didn't seem to have a care in the world. Why? Because they were of the world. That's why the world left them alone. Though the text does not give the details of what they went through, doubtless Paul's circumstances for him and his fellow workers were practically overwhelming. They didn't think they were going to make it out of this life alive. But now to notice the victory story that Paul gives here to the Corinthians. In verse 9, Paul said in so many words that the Lord not only delivered them, but he had every confidence that the Lord would deliver them in any future life or death situation. I see Paul and his friends here as Christians who on the human level cheated death. You ever met somebody like that? Somebody cheated death? See, and those who've been to the brink of death, they have a tendency to live a little bit differently, don't you think? There's a quiet, sure confidence that they really are indestructible till God calls them home. And Paul had the confidence that even if they do die, what could God do if God was not finished with them? He could raise them from the dead, couldn't he? Think of the Lord Jesus. Number one, primary person. He died. He was crucified. His enemies thought, that's enough. What happened to him? He's now resurrected, exalted to the Father's right hand. What about Lazarus, who was in the grave for four days? Remember how his sister said, he stinketh? 
You know, I like the King James Version there. Jesus raised him to show all those standing around Lazarus's grave that Jesus was a resurrection and the life. And further back in time, think of Elisha. Though God did not raise him from the dead, what happened when a dead person touched the dead prophet's bones? He lived. He was resurrected. In the more recent days, what about our brother David Ring, who was born dead in our midst? Think of Rusty. I believe that God raised him from the dead. And how many countless miracles, unnoticed by the masses, has God performed down through the ages for his glory to accomplish his purposes? My dear brothers and sisters, the Lord has his plan. And we, as his family members, God's spiritual army, will use us as he sees fit that he might receive glory among the nations, and especially in his church. But now notice in verse 11 how high of a priority Paul considers prayer to be. He says, you must help us by prayer. Now, prayer is something we talk about here at Grace United. It is something that we do. We spend a few moments as we pray for our missionaries. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters before we sing the songs and before we have the message. But Paul considered prayer to be supernatural assistance, helping him in his ministry. How powerful is the dynamic that God commands us to engage in? He does command us, you know, to pray. How powerful saw Paul saw prayer to be? How crucial is prayer for us as well? Let me ask, do you believe this? Do you believe that prayer is crucial to us, to yourself, to this ministry, to the body of Christ? Is it crucial? So then let me ask, how do you treat this incredible gift God has given to us? How do you see prayer? Do you engage in it? And how do you do so? How much of a priority do you place in prayer, actively involving yourself in it? Now, I've shared this before, but it's good to remind us of the words of a Christian lawyer. (laughs) There are those that exist. His name is Ian Bounds. A number of years ago, he wrote a book called Power Through Prayer. And he says, what the church needs today is not new organizations or more and novel methods, but people whom the Holy Spirit can use. People of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. So what can we say about what we've heard today? Let me sum up with three points. First, we need to cultivate a theocentric view of life. And what is that again? God is the center of your life. You see everything through God-shaded glasses. And only by having a theocentric view of life can we then sense God's comfort. As we get afflicted, we will then be able to see that God is actually comforting us at that point. And the only way that we can cultivate a theocentric view of life is to cultivate the relationship that we are to have with the Lord. We're to spend much time and focus our relationship, focus on on working on that to get us closer to Him. And some of us, as we walked in this morning, we heard um, the Gettys sing a most excellent song, O Church, Arise. 
And part of the lyrics speak of the, follower, of the spiritual fact of life that all followers of Christ make up his radiant bride. Indeed, we are the bride of Christ. And this speaks to the newness of marriage. You know, not, not old, old married couples, but bride and bridegroom. This is what we're called. Now, as we know, Wes and Sam were joined together. And for those who don't know, you know, Wes is the male husband and Sam is the female bride, okay? But we rejoice that now what happens? They get to work on their marriage, and especially right now as bride and bridegroom. But as it often happens, those of us who have been married for a while, marriage sometimes gets old, kind of gets stale. We can lose the love we had for our husband or wife when the marriage was young. And spiritually speaking, this is what happened in the church of Ephesus. We read this at the beginning of our service today. And how interesting seeing this is from the very place where Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians. See, the Ephesian Christians were fully committed to the Lord. They were known for believing in and holding fast to the Lord's teachings and his ways. But they allowed the fiery relationship they once had with the Lord to dim. And dim so much so that the bridegroom noticed. In essence, he said to them, remember who you are. You are before anything else a bride. Come close to me. Spend unhurried time with me. Rekindle what you once had. Turn around. Face me. And the bottom line for all this is if we want to have a theocentric view of life, we must work on our relationship with our bridegroom. So let me encourage all of us in this room and those who are, are engaging in Facebook Live, if you can make it, come Wednesday as we're going to hear the message that Jonathan Connors put out there so that we can indeed turn back to our bridegroom and we can get intimate with him again. We want to rekindle our relationship with him. He is kind. He is gracious. He is patient. And he wants us to be with him. Second, let's remember that God wastes nothing in our lives. Nothing, especially in our afflictions. When we go through our afflictions with a theocentric view of life, then we will sense the comfort of the Heavenly Father, who then makes us equipped to turn right around and to comfort others, encourage others with that same comfort. And lastly, remember that God's most choice servants have been afflicted. Let's remember the Lord Jesus, a man of sorrows, thoroughly acquainted with grief. Because he had a theocentric view of life, wanting only to please his father, he had the most freedom of anyone ever to be able to serve others and meet their needs. And the truth is, every one of us has experienced affliction, haven't we? David Ring says, I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? With me, I can say, I'm Glenn Hawkins. I've had seven parents and a very unstable life till I met Jesus. What's your problem? And so in your affliction story, fill in the blank and then ask, what is your problem? May the Lord use what we consider 
our most constraining limitations and by the power and grace of God, turn them into our greatest assets for his honor and for his glory. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you for being the God of all comfort, for being the Father of mercy, for being the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that through your spirit that you comfort us. You take the initiative when we are afflicted. Father, thank you so much for, for, for caring that much about us, for caring that much for us, for never leaving us, never forsaking us. Lord, we depend on you. Help us, please, to have a theocentric view of life. Lord, that where we see you everywhere, in our good circumstances and our bad circumstances, but knowing, Lord, that you are there and you are with us. Lord, use these things in our lives so that we may be equipped to help others. Lord, you tell us in your word that we need to be bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would equip us, help us, and help us to realize, Lord, that you waste nothing in our lives. And we will give you thanks, and we will give you praise through our afflictions, through our good times, through our sorrowful times, because you alone deserve it. And now I pray, Father, as we just finish up our service, we know, Lord, that we're not finished with being in your presence. Help us, Lord, to cultivate that relationship that we have with you, that you are calling us back to yourself. I pray, Father, as we sing, that we will indeed sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray, Father, as we give, that we will give because we are so grateful for what you've done for us. I'm going to thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.